example today, I would love to turn, for you to turn to Psalm 139. You know in a minute, not now, but in a minute we'll put it up. We're in a new series, starting a new series today, um, the Songs of Summer. We're looking at select psalms today, a song of searching. Then next week we'll look at a song of integrity, followed by a song of forgiveness. And then lastly, a song of family. These, uh, the psalms are songs. They're poems and ultimately they're prayers. At its essence, it's crying out to God. The gamut of emotion you see, the broad range of experiences of the human condition is laid out in Psalms. And so we all uh, can connect to it. If you're devoted in your faith today, uh, that's awesome. If you're a skeptic or unsure, uh, constructing, deconstructing, orienting, reorienting, whatever's happening, the Psalms can speak to you uh, today. Today, a song of searching. Um, Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, um, every step you take, I'll be watching you Uh, every single day, every word you say, um, every game you play, every night you stay, I'll be watching you. Every move you make, every vow you break, every smile you fake, every claim you stake, I'll be watching you. Uh, Y'all know from time to time I like to drop smash hits from the 80s, the best decade that God ever made and uh, that my kids listen to today no pressure or coercion they just found the lord's will in 80s music um, sting singer songwriter was interviewed uh, years later after that smash hit in that in uh, rolling stone magazine and he he said that we have misinterpreted the song we'd listen to it kind of with warm and fuzzies and like a, a, a feel good light love song but he describes it these are his words as the song is dark and scary and stalkerish uh yeah i'm thinking yeah it is it really is um Long before Sting wrote his song, uh, the psalmist penned a song that goes like this. He sang, he prayed and sang and put the poetry down that uh, you know everything about me. You know if I sit down, if I stand up, um, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my, my laying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Even before I open my mouth to speak, you, Lord, understand and know completely what I'm about to say. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of a dove, if I go to the other side and settle on the other side of the high seas. You are there. Your right hand is with me and guides me. You hem me in. You hold on to me. You know it all. And that, when you put it in the divine category, when you put it in the the goodness and control and mercy of the transcendent one, it is not dark and not scary and in no way stalkerish. Psalm 139, Amy, I'm going to need you today because I think I might have put my remote control in the baptistry waters, which means we need a new remote control. So when the offering plates pass, just give a little extra for the new remote control. Uh, It's like I'm at home, babe. I'm not operating the remote control. Uh, A woman is. Her name is Emmy. All right, here we go. Thank you, Emmy, for that. Search me, uh, David prays. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Be careful of praying this prayer. I bet some of you've heard it because this is the best-selling book of all time. It's the songbook and the best-selling book of all time. And this is a psalm that's it's just 
it's been out there. People have talked about it. You've probably heard me quote this very passage uh, from time to time. But be careful praying this prayer. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. It can convict you, correct you, and redirect you. And let me say at the outset, this is not a prayer where he's saying, Lord, do something for me. It's a prayer where he's saying, God, reveal something in me. And put yourself there. What if your prayers gravitated more to that? Lord, not what you can do for me, but what you need to reveal in me. What I need you to reveal inside of me. But stop for a second because who wants more scrutiny? Like you don't want more scrutiny. You don't want more accountability. I mean, most of us have tons of uh, accountability, at least at this level, not in a wholesome spiritual level, but like if you don't pay all those creditors, they get angry and then they come at you and you got to call the bank and negotiate your surrender. You have accountability. If you get in your vehicle and drive 90 miles an hour down Lakeland, which is almost impossible with the stoplights, the way they're timed. But if you try to do that, like you'll be accountable. They're coming to get you. If you don't show up at work tomorrow, those of you who still keep regular office hours in a post-COVID world, if you don't show up, your boss could be coming at you. There's plenty of accountability that we have. It seems like we have to pay things and show up and work and we have obligations. And it just when we think about something like this, uh, offering our lives up for greater scrutiny, seems like it's a little painful. seems like it's a little uninviting. I'm going to give you four things from this passage that uh, the psalmist gives us. And it, it all is in this category of opening our lives up, of less hiding, more honesty. God, not what you can do for me, but what needs to be revealed in me. Uh, all of us probably at, uh, in our young, young days played hide and seek, and we don't do it enough in our adulthood, the, the games, the fun. I, I've, I've always been a fan of the game because uh, it doesn't require anything. It doesn't require a lot of intelligence. A lot of, it doesn't, you need to have fun and be intuitive and, and have people that you love to play with. And hide and seek, uh, I think we probably, most of us will agree, it's more fun to be the person hiding than it is to be the person who's doing the seeking. And uh, our daughter loved to play this game when she was little bitty. Um, Haley developed a rule and she told, told us the rule would be that she would, uh, if she looks for us and it's taken too long, that there would need to be a clue. And the clue would be this, that you would need to say, or she would say, whoever is looking, whoever's doing the seeking would say, can I get a tweet, tweet? And then whoever is, uh, this is before Twitter, whoever's out there would, uh, whoever's hiding would have to make a quick bird noise. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, her game, her rules, she could do that. Hide and seek is fun, especially when you're one that's hiding. And from an early age, as we play and make up our rules and play this game of hide and seek, we learn that there's value in hiding, in escaping, in avoiding. And we stop playing it when we grow into adulthood, at least the game version. But yet we adopt a lifestyle of those very things. Hiding, escaping, and avoiding. So that we're confronted with this passage, this song of searching today from Psalm 139. And this prayer, search me, O God. So the first principle is to search my heart. How is your heart? We have a saying, it's common among people. We say so-and-so is, they're a good-hearted person. Has anybody ever described you as a, 
as a good-hearted person. Um, you hope that they have, you hope they do, hope they will. To be good-hearted, I think, in the best-case scenario, it's a reference to someone who's probably thoughtful and kind, who's honest and trustworthy. They're a good-hearted person. Now, in the South, I think you know that when we say someone's a good-hearted person, we're about to do a quick detour. We're about to, to rip into them, right? Hey, so-so, man, they got a good heart. I'll pick on Van. He's on our staff team. Van, man, Van's got a good heart, but, you know, and then you, 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 you level something. We, we tend to do that, especially in the South. But do you have a good heart? Jeremiah 17, 9 puts it this way. Just a dose of ragged edge reality for us today. The heart, hey, good-hearted people, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is how the Bible describes the heart. Now, to be theologically correct, to be balanced, to avoid any sort of controversy, to make um, us not feel too low about uh, what we're pursuing here. The Bible teaches both the depravity of man and the dignity of man. Ecclesiastes 3, you've heard us preach it here not too long ago. Uh, God has said eternity in our hearts. There's good heartedness in us. He's given us eternity in our hearts, but yet Jeremiah is describing a heart that's deceitful, that's wicked. Uh, church folks are the last people and the worst people to admit that we lie. Think about this. If I were to ask you to raise your hand uh, if you lie, w you would be reluctant uh, to raise your hand. And here's the, the truth about it is we lie. We lie. We lie. And researchers say that, uh, sociologists say that we lie based on two big reasons. Number one, we don't want to make people feel bad. And number two, we want to make ourselves look good. There's an old preacher's story of a pastor who moved to a new city, he took on a new church, and they welcomed him. There was one woman in particular, she was very nice, very hospitable, she was a widow. She baked pies for people, baked goods and treats and stuff, and, but she couldn't cook. It was, it was never any good. She gave the new pastor and his family a new pie. She brought it over and gave it to them, and it wasn't any good. They took a bite of it, and he threw it away. And the next Sunday, he sees her at church. He says, well, hey, pastor, how was that pie I made you? And he said, he thought about it. And he said, ma'am, let me assure you that a pie like that doesn't last long around our house. A lot of our lies are to avoid hurting other people. Now, think about your life. Think about the deception that can be within you. We spin stories. Uh, we alter the truth. We lie so that other people don't feel bad and we lie to make other people think things about us are true. But instead of just thinking about the lies, the deception of your heart, of lying to others, think about the lies that you tell yourself. Think about the regular lies that point to your own weakness, to point to your own need. Uh, lies like, I'll just have a couple of bites and I'll stop. And the next thing you know, you're at the bottom of that gallon of ice cream. Um, I, I'm just going to do such and such. It's not going to cause anybody harm. You know, I'm doing this to cope with all the stress of my life. And whatever that may be, we lie, not just to others, but we practice deception even within ourselves. David would, in Psalm 86 would say, Lord, unite my heart. It's so divided. Unite my heart to fear your name. And all of us, I believe, have a divided heart. It's part of the deceitfulness. It's part of the wickedness that is in us. So David is saying, Lord, Search my heart, search it, and get down deep to it. The prophet Isaiah would say this about a group of people, and I think we can be inflicted 
with the same thing. It's where we get our common colloquialism, lip service. Do you know somebody that just pays lip service? Um, Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus would later quote this found in Matthew 15. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men with their lips, but not their heart. Search my heart. The same one who said, search my heart would be the one, if you'll see in 1 Samuel and later in Acts, he was described by God, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The one who sinned, the one who hurt his family, the one who damaged his reputation, the one who broke hearts, the one who um, exercised power. We're studying a lot about leaders in ministry and politics and uh, on the world stage who um, a story came out yesterday of that rich guy trying to buy Twitter and a politician in Georgia. Just the stories come out again and again, and we, don't, it, we just don't seem to learn. It, they say it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And David committed the crime, and then there was a cover-up, and there was the elaborate scheme of trying to hide the deceitfulness that was in his heart, the deceitfulness that spilled out of his life. But God, that's the God. That's the God that we have. The God who says, this is the man after my own heart and while other people I don't know who needs to hear it but while other people may be giving up on you or it seems they're giving up on you God has not and God wants to be that in your life here's here's this declaration from scripture this man is a man after my heart the second thing from this passage beyond search my heart is reveal my fears to reveal my fears our fear our anxiety is on the rise if you look at our society, anxiety is going up. Anxiety, particularly coupled with depression. Um, it's been great. If you're generous to our church, I want to say thank you because uh, we are allowed to, we've been allowed over these years to take better and better steps coming alongside people with mental and emotional health. And can I just ask you, shouldn't the church do that? Isn't that what we should, should be about? And so we've locked arms with other ministries, with mental health professionals, to try to go deep with people who are opening up the suitcase of their lives and trying to figure out trauma and wounds and everything like that. Not to point people to some exclusive, um, shallow, therapeutic model, but to get the gospel down deeper into people, but to see where the goodness of God intersects with the pain of our lives. And I have locked arms with some friends who are mental health professionals. I talked to them, uh, a couple of them by phone this week as I wrote this very this very sermon and I learned from them they pointed me to resources and pointed me to some research that demonstrates very clearly that say for women the number one health concern for women is anxiety and depression for men it's number two only behind drugs and alcohol but in some ways uh, it's probably just because men aren't as honest as women are about our weaknesses um, what Question for you, what demographic is growing most with anxiety and depression issues? Any guesses on that? It's our teenagers. Take a look at some recent Pew research. If you look at problems that teens are undergoing, poverty, drinking alcohol, drug addiction, bullying, these, you see these percentages, you see their numbers according to this Pew Research Center asking the teenage population. But look what's above them all, 70% above all the others, 70% are in a battle with anxiety and depression, and it seems that that number is growing. And let me just stop and say, let me, let me take a breath. 
And let me stop and breathe a second because I don't want you to miss this. If you're battling anxiety, if fear is overwhelming you, the last prayer you want to pray is reveal my fear. If it's overwhelming you, look, if you have anxiety, here's what it means. You ready? It means you're human. It means you're human. And I want to say it. I've said it before. I want to say it again. Some of the most courageous, heroic people I know have this battle. It is a battle, and they're courageous and they're heroic because they get up and get after the day and do all that they can to move forward in life. And so if you battle, if you have this anxiety battle, it means that you're normal. It means that you're human. But at the same time, these truths I don't believe contradict. I think they're hard to hold in tension, but we need to fight it. We need to, we need to move forward into the light to a more peaceful heart and more peaceful homes and more peaceful society. It's what God has called us to do. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry for itself. And it's hard to go to sleep at night and not let the worries of tomorrow bite. And Jesus speaks into this, and we need to hear it this morning. Reveal, David prayed, reveal, reveal my fears. Another question for you, what um, nation... In all the world, what nation struggles with anxiety the most? What is the most? You know how like in, in the finance, there's the leading economic indicators. And uh, it tells you what's going on with the economy and present state and forecasting. Well, they've come up, psychologists and doctors have come up with this, um, these indicators of anxiety. What nation is number one? Any guesses? That, what nation in the world is number one? Can I tell you today, Switzerland is number one. No, I'm just kidding. Not Switzerland. I mean, no. I'm just seeing if you're awake. I mean, have you been to Switzerland? There, there's not, there's, no, they're good. They're good. Don't worry. Don't worry about Switzerland. Think about Switzerland when you walk out into the humidity today, but they're fine. The number one nation in all the world with anxiety is the United States. We get the gold medal with anxiety. In fact, Robert Putman in a book, a Harvard researcher in a book called Bowling Alone talks about how when other people from other nations come to America and settle in, their anxiety grows. Some of you have been and you go on mission trips and you go to share the good news, you go to help, but then you find out they've helped you. You find out you get back to us, you get back to America and you see the stress of it all and you start missing where you came from. You see a simplicity there that, that we don't have here. So the question would be, why is anxiety going up? Search my heart, reveal my fears, why are, is fear and anxiety, why is it going up? There's a comedian that talks about how we fear the wrong things. You ever think about that? Like, you, if you're going to be afraid, at least be afraid of the right things. He, he jokes, he says that uh, we're, we're afraid of spiders, but like nobody's afraid of diarrhea. But more people around the world die of diarrhea than spiders. We've gotten it wrong. So fear the chalupa from Taco Bell. But uh, we, fear, uh, we fear the wrong things. Why are we growing in our fear? I want to offer you three reasons. I don't know if anybody takes notes in the summer months. But the first thing I would give you, and I'm going to, just for a second, give me this. I'm going to sound like an ignorant, fundamentalist, independent preacher here. But just give me it, okay? I think one of the reasons, number one, is that there's been a continual removal of God in society. And can I just say, is there any correlation? I mean, you, you tell me later. Is there any correlation between the re continued removal of God in society and a spike in anxiety? The second reason I, I would submit to you today is that we're not socially connected like we need to be. And we think we are. It's cotton candy, y'all. 
It's cotton candy. Likes and comments and shares and the dopamine that's released and what we think we're sharing life with each other. But it's so, there's so much breadth and almost little depth to it all. So the subtraction of God, the removal, continual removal of God from society could lead to more anxiety, uh, less social connections. And the third reason I give you is that we are more aware of what other people have and tragedy than at any time before. I know I'm mixing my points here. We're more aware of what other people have and tragedy more than at any other time. And our anxiety is going through. We're not built for it. We're not built for that, y'all. We're not built. The soul is not meant to bear the weight of knowing the thoughts and opinions and vacations and travel and Instagram images of everybody that we know and a lot of people we don't know. You're not built for it. I was with a friend several months ago, and we were engaging in conversation. We were in one of those places that had a lot of flat screen TVs. And we noticed that there was some breaking news that there was a nation across the other part of the world that shot some missiles toward another nation. And everybody in the restaurant was looking up at the TV. Me and my friend suspended our conversation to see what was happening. Um, and that's the world we live in. And if you're young, you may not get this. So young people, listen up. But our grandparents, like my grandparents, when that happened, they wouldn't know about that for days, if not weeks. And for us, it's immediate. And we're not, you know, I'm not saying go into some, you know, become a reclusive hermit in a cave somewhere. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the thing to do, although I've been thinking a lot of, about it lately. But man, we're not built to bear the weight of the bombardment of bad and the immediacy of which we get, about, get our news. So those three things, I think, demonstrate the growing levels. I think they speak to the growing levels of anxiety. I was in a cabin in the woods this week doing some extended study and prayer, trying to recoup from some stuff in my own life and be ready for a fall. And y'all know the summer season, how it is. So if you can get a little extra uh, wind and breath in your, uh, you know, wind in your sails, it's a good thing. And I, I was reading a, a couple of of books that were ministering to my soul. In one book called Anxious for Nothing, he talks about this. It's a beautiful contrast. It's not just poetic, but y'all, it's really good theology. It's a good truth. He says this, fear sees a threat and reacts, but anxiety imagines a threat and can't move on. How good is that? You're gonna be afraid. There's no verse here that says, God will now remove all fear. You've been baptized. You've been, you know, you're, now all fear is removed. I, I can't find one scripture. Y'all know it's the most common command in all the Bible. We've taught this frequently here. Do not fear, do not, do not fear, do not be afraid. 360 some verses on do not be afraid. But it's, though it's a command, God never gives us this pleasant life, a pampered existence where we don't have any reasons to be afraid. But fear, fear helps you react you see a threat and you react when we were at dueling hall our church was about two years old and some of you know this story a snake slithered in in the middle of a sermon and it came up from the auditorium from the basement down there where we used to hide our baptistry and this snake just slid in and grown men squealed like schoolgirls, and they jumped up and I tried to keep preaching after that but I, I lost everybody it was just a it was a, some of you if you were there you definitely uh, definitely remember it but you want to have a certain level of fear because you move out of danger. But a spirit of fear 
results in a life of anxiety. And that's where God wants to work. And let me say this, where you fear the most is likely where God can work the best in your life. And that thing that's getting you, it could be the very thing. So there are fears to run from, but there are fears to walk through. And that's where God wants to minister to us. The third, uh, let's see, where are we? The final thing that I want to share with you today Search my heart, reveal my fears. And the third thing, oh yeah, these are three passages of, that are important to me. Um, back in the day, Saturday Night Live used to have a skit with Al Franken, who strangely became a senator in Minnesota. Um, he, was, he played a character named Stuart Smalley. Some of you are smiling. You're, if you're smiling, you're kind of old. And uh, Stuart would look in the mirror, and he would wear this sweater, and he would give these th- Three daily affirmations. I'm good enough. Can you say it with me? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And the humor of that SNL skit was just the shallowness and the silliness of that. You take that stuff into the real world, man, you'll get knocked down at the knees. Like that's just not good enough to look into a mirror with your sweater on and say you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. Because sometimes you're not good enough. In fact, your heart's deceitfully wicked above all else. Sometimes you're not smart enough. Most of the rooms I go to now, somebody's smarter than me. That's a good thing. And doggone it, not everybody's going to like you. If you think everybody likes you, sign up for leadership. Not everybody's going to like you. But these are three daily affirmations for me. I don't look into a mirror, aren't you glad? I stopped doing that a long time ago. You know any of these passages? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. You will be afraid. I'll be afraid. I'll walk off this stage. I'll tackle my day. Something will make me afraid later today. Guarantee you. I'll think of something tonight. Maybe one of you will give me a reason to be afraid. I'll think, look, you're going to be, but a spirit of fear is a spirit that pervades you. And, and Paul is telling a young disciple, he's saying, this is what we ought to do, by the way. This is what parents ought to do. This is what we ought to do in the church. We'll only be the healthy to the extent that we can be multi-generational, where older people can look at younger people and say, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Philippians 4.3, I think a lot of you know that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's in the context of contentment. It's in the context of, don't, of those who are battling anxiety. Hey, look, he will provide. He'll give you all that you need. You can do all things through Christ. You can learn contentment. And then lastly, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. These are so much better than I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. And working that through, and it's, it's beyond memorization, it's meditation. It's getting God's truth deep into you. Because as one scholar once said, if you're not fortified with good ideas, you'll be victimized by bad ones. And these are the ideas that God gives us to be fortified with. Search my heart, reveal my fears. And then thirdly, he speaks of uncover my sins. I want to give you three ways to help this prayer be true in your life. And I know there's resistance. Why would, you wanna, why would you want to uncover your sins? Because I know you want to keep playing hide and seek, to hide, to escape, to avoid. But it's not fun when you become an adult. And so God, uncover my sins. Here's three things to ask. What is God telling me? What are other people telling me? And where am I most defensive? Three questions that can cut to the quick. Three questions that if you'll get serious about them, you will see God work in you. You'll see him do what you don't want him to do, but what you need him to do, uncover your sin. And remember, Jesus makes the promise, Luke eight seventeen. if you don't uncover them, they'll be uncovered. 
And so do that work. Be proactive with that. What is God telling me? What are other people telling me? And where am I most offensive? Proverbs 12, 15, I bet you've heard this. The foolish people, what do they say? The way of fools seems right to them. Stay there because we bypass it. It seems right. It seems right. Like you will argue it. You'll pound the table. You'll point your finger. You'll deny because what? Because it seems right. That's the way of fools. But the wise, they listen to advice. I was at a leadership summit a couple of years back and learned from a guru who said that every leader in the corporate world has a three, on average 3.4 blind spots. Now, do you have blind spots? Um, let me prove that stat. 100% of you, when I said that to yourself, you thought, I don't have any blind spots. That's what we say. That's in us. Now, you would say, I've got weaknesses. Like, I bet you say, hey, here's some of my weaknesses. I'll share them with a few trusted friends. Some of them are so glaringly weak that uh, people see them when they're around me. I have weaknesses. I'm working on the weaknesses. I'll admit my weaknesses. I'm seeking to correct my weaknesses, okay? We do that, but we don't get blind spots. Uh, for, for, for decades, I have uh, prided myself on being cool under pressure. Anybody that way, like, you're, you're like you can have things around you and you could, should be under duress, but when people are with you, they're like, man, this guy is a cucumber. I mean, he's just, he's cool under pressure. And when I was in college, I was a pretty good poker player. And, you know, just there are times I just don't like drama. And that was a point of pride for me. Several years ago, a perfect storm of pressure entered my world. And it lasted for months. And one day a female colleague was in my office and she said, Robert, man, when you are stressed, you stress other people. And, you know, you get on this crazy train of pressure and stress and you, that spills out to other people. And I'm going to tell you what, I know some stuff you're going through and I don't know it all, but like, I'm not going to get on the crazy train and I'm staying at the station and I'm not gonna, I'm not jumping on the train with you and, and if some other people can get on the crazy train, but I'm not gonna get on it with you. And she left. And I thought the nerve of this woman, I am her boss technically. And I just remember thinking, who is she to tell me this? She should be grateful that she knows me. She should be grateful that she can work for a leader like me that possesses uh, such coolness and calmness under pressure. She should thank God for having me in her life. Later that day, I was running with a buddy. And I told him, I said, man, you know, so-and-so was in my office today and said the following, accused me. I was falsely accused. My feelings are hurt. I was falsely accused of not being good under pressure. And we, he stopped running in the middle of the road. And he said, man, you know, RG, when you're stressed, you, you, you've taken it out on some people. And kind of as a capper, he said, you know, you've been working, you've been overworking. And because you've been overworking, you've been trying to make other people overwork. And I shared that with a few friends of what my running buddy and the female colleague had said. And all those friends, those few friends were like, dude, you're just now seeing this. And it's painful when a blind spot is pointed out in your life. Does anybody remember how I started that story? Anybody remember? I said, for decades, I thought I was cool and calm under pressure. And you can carry blind spots in your life for a long time. What is God telling you? What are other people telling you? 
And where are you most defensive? And that, just that last question, look at me. I'm pointing my finger at somebody today. I don't know who. But that, your defensiveness, that's where God, that's where he wants to work. And the final thing, search my heart, reveal my fears, uncover my sins. As Micah and the team began to come up and we began to close, he prays, lead me. Lead me in the everlasting way. One of the books I've read this week is by John Eldridge. He's talking about uh, three spaces um, that define us, that we human beings occupy. If we can put that up, he talks about the shallows, the midlands and the depths. And the shallows he defines as a place of distraction. It's a place where we, uh, we're not focused. We, we're a hamster on a treadmill. We ride a roller coaster of distraction. We have a, a flittering, flickering thousand thoughts like butterflies going through our minds. It's, it's, it's distraction. It's the shallows. But then he says there's a place of the midlands. And he describes that the shallows are a place of distraction. The midlands are a place, he says, a place of care, of great care and worry. It's not a, a thousand different things that burns our mental energy and loses our focus. It's one thing or a few things that weighs on us. Look what Jesus would say in Luke 21, 34 about our heart, about a heart that's weighed down. But watch yourself lest your hearts be weighed down. In the Midlands, we get weighed down with things. But in the depths of life, he says that most of us spend our lives in the shallows and um, in the Midlands, but it's in the depths of our lives that God wants to grow us. Let's look, as we close, stand if you will. Let's look at David and Solomon and Paul and Jesus in rapid fire fashion. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Proverbs 20, the purpose in a man's heart is like what? Deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Jesus in John 7, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And lastly, Paul in a prayer in Ephesians, I pray that one of his, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. All of us have a depth to our lives, but most of us wasted in the shallows or in the Midlands, the, the ton of distractions or the few dominant cares. And we don't move to the depths of being, the deep, what did David pray? Search my heart, reveal my fears, uncover my sin and lead me in the everlasting way father would you bless us for being here would you uh, in the heat of a summer day would you do a work in our hearts as we look at these songs in the weeks ahead a song of searching a song of integrity a song of forgiveness a song of family and they're more than songs and poems they're prayers And I can't help but think how our lives could be so different if we moved from praying prayers about getting stuff from God, getting stuff from you, and asking you to reveal stuff about us, and then letting you do the deep work. Search, and know, reveal, and lead. In Jesus we pray. Bless these tithes and offerings. Amen.